millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine, the show where we take a sneak peek inside the working day of some of the most successful authors that there are. Uh, This week, our guest is Hugh Montgomery. Have a listen to this. Hugh is a professor, a practicing doctor, a lead expert on climate change. He's an ultra runner. He holds a world record. And now he's an author. We talk about his new thriller, Control, uh, how he manages his insane work schedule and why he thinks that his brain works the way that it does and why he loves to be busy. And in amongst all of that, we find time to talk about the process. We chat about plotting and in particular what he thinks about that famous plot roadmap that I seem to love so much. I think I have a rough idea of the the major signposts of, you know, who the main character is, where we're ending up. And I have a legendarily appalling sense of direction in real life and I have the same in stories. So I find myself wandering all over the place. Uh, but usually it turns out that there's good reason for those people to be there and for things to have happened. So I've just got to trust the fact that um, if there isn't, I'll just get rid of those chapters and jettison them at the end. But usually they turn up. So I tend to wander and find myself in the right place. That's sort of roughly where I'm going. But the bits between, there's, it, I'd love to claim there was a route map and I knew I was going down the A3 or something, but um, I, I, I'm not. I think it's quite an inspiring one today. So stick around. More with Hugh Montgomery on the way in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Hello. Uh, My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, the show where we try to steal some scheduling secrets from some of the most successful writers that there are. Um, And we're back with our second episode of the week. Did you enjoy that? The little bonus one with Mason Curry? I thought it was good to kind of drop that in after quite a slow December and start of the year that we've had. I thought that would be a nice little surprise. Now, in this episode, our guest is Hugh Montgomery. Before we get into it, let me just list his achievements and the work that he does because it's quite phenomenal. He's a practicing clinician. He's a groundbreaking genetic researcher. He helped discover the ACE gene, which influences physical fitness and endurance. He's a founder member on the UK Climate and Health Council. He's written kids' books, which have been turned into films. He's conducted research on Everest. He runs ultramarathons. He holds the world record for playing piano underwater. And after being badgered by Linda LaPlante, of all people, he's finally written his first thriller. It's called Control. It's all about a doctor that gets involved in crime. 
And they do kind of say, right, well, you know, don't they? There's mystery, suspense, and a lot of stuff that only a doctor would know. It really does take you into the heart of hospital life and how a thriller could take place there. Now, because Hugh does so much, it's not the standard author interview that we usually have on. I'll be honest, it's probably my fault. I get a little bit sidetracked, I think, asking about all the other things that he does to keep busy, how he fits it all in, how much sleep he gets, why he does these things, if he actually thinks that he's creative or not. But I promise there's loads in there that I think is is pretty inspirational and loads of little nuggets that can help out with your working day. And let's dive right into it then with Hugh Montgomery, starting as always with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I normally write in one of two places. So I write in Cornwall and I see a blank wall with a small window um, sitting at a kitchen table because if I have a view, then I can't concentrate. So I have to have virtually, I have to be a bit monastic. I'm sure you've heard that from lots of people, but I can't, I can't be near people when I'm writing and I can't be near distraction when I'm writing. That is a common theme. Mm. It's also that idea of escape. Why Cornwall? Why are you heading down there to write? Well, I was raised in Plymouth, so I knew this bit of Cornwall quite well. So I suppose I've got an affinity for that and the sea. And uh, you need a little bit of space to what I call kick the cat. I don't have a cat and I wouldn't kick one. But the bit when you've just written something 11 times and then you throw it up in the bins, proverbially sort of screw the piece of paper up or delete it. Uh, And then you have to go around and kick the cat, as it were. And you've got to have something but you can't be in a place where there's a distraction or a tv set you can switch on or or something else to do so i need to be away from other people so the place i write is where other people are not basically so what is there to distract you then there must be something there always is you escape to cornwall you've not got a view what do you have around you it might not be a distraction maybe it's inspiration for you i have the ability to exercise which i find is very important creatively so i can't exercise generally I'm stale and if it's an acute issue where I can't think of something then I run or cycle or do something else and then very often the thing that I'm trying to wrestle with pops into my head and it's solved or quite often something else pops into my head that turns out to be incredibly useful that I then write down but but to exercise I, I find really helpful. And in terms of your story, in terms of writing and fiction, yes. if I were to walk into the room in Cornwall where you are writing, would I have any clues as to the story you're telling? Do you have post-it notes? Is there a big whiteboard? No. Um, for film and television plotting, yes. So that's, for me, very much more mechanistic when it comes to actually writing. So I've got the traditional 42 cards, you know, three acts, yada, yada, yada. Um, which I can then, because you've really got to be incredibly parsimonious if it's 102 minutes, you've got to absolutely, every single thing has to absolutely matter and you cannot just be discursive. Um, For books, I've tended to make the mistake probably of knowing the plot and then just sitting down and writing and then it just sort of happens. Um, The only slight danger is that is sometimes the book that you write isn't the book you thought you were writing. That's happened to me at least once where where characters suddenly appear and you don't know why they're there but you can't get past them so you write them in and then you suddenly actually find the book was a, something about something different. You say knowing the plot. Hmm. What do you mean knowing the plot? So what, what do you genuinely know before, what do you tend to know before you sit down and write? Well, I suppose the best example is the first full-length book I wrote was a children's book 
called The Voyage of the Arctic Turn, and that would be a long while ago now. Quickly uh, tell us the story of how that came to exist, because it's quite a good story. Oh, OK. Well, it, it's, it's sort of a bit random um, in that I was in Edinburgh doing science and I was living in a tiny little, well, a B&B sort of bedroom. Um, and in those days, shops used to sort of shut at six o'clock. No one would believe this now, but 15 years ago, that did happen. And so by the time I got back from the labs, everything was shut. And I realised I hadn't bought my godchildren a Christmas present. So I thought, well, I don't know, I'll write them a short story for Christmas. And I'll write them all in as characters and write their parents in. And so I sat down to start writing it. And the first problem was it, it started writing itself in verse. And every time I tried to write it in prose, it kept coming back out as verse. So I thought, oh, who cares about monkeys? I'll just write it in verse then. You know, it's only going to be short. And then the first chapter had nothing at all to do with the book I was writing and that wouldn't not be there either so I thought oh, I'll just write that and then then at least I can move on um, and I finished the book three years later um, and halfway through I suddenly understood what the book was about which was all about what the first chapter was about so it was all in my subconscious my sort of non-dominant hemisphere I suppose had it all mapped out and just hadn't told my dominant hemisphere what it was up to. What did the kids get for Christmas in the end? Uh, not that I can't remember what they got I think actually because I was still that book was all um, well it's, its grand theme was about betrayal as it turned out um, but it was set at sea because I'd been a commercial diver and archaeological diver things before and I had some pieces of eight Spanish silver which I'd got from previous diving L legally I hasten to add I was paid in them and I um, sent them those I think for Christmas so they all got a piece of eight now, the show is called Writer's Routine. I think it would make sense before we even try and unpack yours. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we just... Good luck with that. <laughs> if you just rather grandly, because that's probably the only way you can do it, yeah. well, yeah. If, if you just take us through everything you do, like, not everything yeah. you do, but the titles, because... Uh, so I saw the Guardian article, which obviously in, in pretty emphatically describes how energetic you are, all these things that you do, but could you just take us through it? How do you see yourself? What are you? I don't know. I, it's a very good question. Um, how do I see myself? As probably as unimportant as most other people are. Um, if I was to define the drivers in my life, I suppose I'm naturally a creative. So I see the potential in things. And I'm quite good at making what would seem to be fairly random connections between things. So I've been very successful in science, not because I'm a particularly good bench scientist, but because I've been quite good at seeing how things might connect that no one else can see. So that's not being intelligent. That's just being an artist, isn't it? That's just looking at things going, oh, I bet that looks like this. Or it would seem obvious that evolution would do the following. And instinctively, uh, it's usually right. So that's my science world, which has involved everything from finding genes for fitness and predicting evolution from mathematical models and currently lots of artificial intelligence work. Um, and then the other paid part of my life, I suppose, is clinical intensive care. So I'm a consultant in the NHS working in an intensive care unit, which is life support machines, basically. And then I do a lot of work in sustainability and climate change and, and then write and no. other things. I'm very interested in climate change. Very quickly, let's not gloss over it. Yeah. What do you do for climate change? Well, haven't I done? I've tried hard to address it for about the last 20 years. So I've written a children's book about it and got Warner to make a film about it and tried to do school's work. But it was at a time when the denialists were still very much in the forefront. That made it difficult. 
Um, I've worked with government. I've been to the international negotiations, the COP process, which is going on in Madrid. I've worked on climate and health, so we've pulled together an alliance of rural colleges in Britain and work with countries around the world. And I chair an international commission on climate change and health of 35 institutions in 27 countries, which reports once a year. So, um, yeah, I've tried anything to see what I could do to work. And, of course, it turns out all I needed to do was be a girl and be Greta Thunberg and get off my rear end and say it the way I should have said it in the first place. And she's trumped all of us, thank goodness. She's been fantastic, hasn't she? Also, just very quickly, so... There's the, there's the science things, you, you run ultramarathons, and yeah. there's this thing where you learn new skills every year. Yeah, which I think is a really good idea. Um, I think we all get subsumed in our lives of ending up doing the same things, and, um, and we all work very hard, everyone works very hard. If you work in a production line, or you try to raise three kids or whatever, that's, it, these are really hard jobs, and you can end up doing nothing but those things. And I would. So the only thing I can do is to set myself a target of having learned something usually to the point of sitting the exam or running the race or whatever it might be so that there's a specific goal um and that's enjoyable i think it's good for the brain and there's good reason to say that it's good for the brain to do that um and there's actually some interesting stuff about remaining young and time so i'll have to ask you the question so when when time you know this whole thing, time goes quicker and quicker the older you get, right? And the conventional argument is when you're one, you live for another year, that's 100% of your life. Again, when you're 50 and you live for another year, it's sort of 2% of your life. So That's always the, yeah. the, the thought that I've only just cottoned on to, by right. the way. No one has told me that before. It's oh. just someone was saying, I mean, I'm in my late 20s, and someone was oh, saying, oh, this, I know. Someone was saying, oh, this year's gone very quickly. And I was saying, well, is that because it's only, it's a year is now a 28th of your life mm. rather than... 10%. Well, it turns out, turns out probably not. Okay. So the answer is about surprise. So when things surprise you and are new, time goes slowly, which is why if you go on a holiday for a week to someone you've absolutely never been, you've never seen those things before, that week can feel like forever. But the older you get, the more you've done everything. I mean, you've seen every version of every film, you've read every book with every plot, you've got to got up to and gone to work to do the same thing and even interviewing me you've interviewed a hundred thousand people like me so everything becomes very much the same and when everything becomes the same things move really really quickly if you're surprised by things things slow right down again so if you're wrestling with trying to do a new thing it slows time down what's happening in my this is so far away from writing and you're in control by the way what's happening in your brain that that's affecting Oh, it's getting complicated. There are some clock functions in your brain that time register what's happening with events. And a lot of hormones as well as neurotransmitters will affect that, which is, I mean, there's been some very interesting experiments where if you put people on, strap them into sort of chairs, and the chair suddenly gives way and they drop into a safety net, it might be said, but it's, a, it's not the most relaxing experience. Mm. If you ask people to estimate the time of the drop, it's totally different from the person in the chair from the person watching it. So they estimate in the chair that it might be, say, six seconds. The person watching it might say two, and in reality it might be one and a half. So it's, it's, adrenaline does a lot to do with that, so being frightened or excited helps, but it's also certainly true that being engrossed in learning something new. And I'm not telling you anything that's not your own experience. If you were trying to learn to play the guitar or the piano or you know, trying to build an airfix kit the first time, you, know, you can be sitting there for 
ages and time just you lose track don't you of, of, of time and I certainly find that with writing that I can sit down and lock in and I have no idea how much time has gone by and sometimes it can be a matter of minutes that seems like hours and sometimes I can have been there for the entire day and scarcely moved because you're in that that state of of flow no. I think scientists call it Eckhart Tolle calls yeah. it um, no mind yeah. which is the detachment of your thoughts and the ego of your brain taking over it's that little space yeah and it's true and it's certainly that sort of dissociative state I think it, lots of writers I speak to say that they do the same thing some have control some sit down and write line by line know what they're doing next sculpt the next sentence you know if you read Stephen King's on writing it sounds very much as if an awful lot of what he's doing is very, very well process driven. Um, for a lot of other people, it is disappearing off into that other space where things happen. And I certainly had that experience of once when I was writing the first children's book where I was writing and I became aware that it was getting faster and faster and to the point when I couldn't think as quickly as it was coming out of my fingers. And it was the best writing that happened, but it was a very peculiar feeling. I know that the you know, Greeks and Romans would have talked about the muse dictating and others would talk about possession. I have to say from experience, it felt like possession. It felt like I was being controlled. And I knew at the time that if I carried on, it would be the best thing I'd ever written. But I also had the vague feeling that I crossed the Rubicon, somehow that if I'd let that happen I might never come back to being the same again so I stopped and went for a walk and I often wondered what would have happened if I'd carried on but I'd obviously got myself in that state of flow and you hear it um, uh, I'm just trying to think famous climber um, clouds from both sides name will come back to me brilliant female climber and she describes in her autobiography of doing martial arts and finding that feeling of flow and then climbing and it finding the same thing and almost felt as if she was being lifted up the mountain um, because everything was just happening without her having conscious control. So I think writing at its best can be like that. What was the, the first new skill that you learned when you had cottoned on to this idea of it, it makes you feel like you're living a longer life? Well, that's a very good question. What was it? I've been doing it for absolutely ages. Um, because sometimes it's not a new skill per se. It might be I'm going to write the new book this year mm. or go back to I'm going to do a, you know, this year I was aiming to do an Ironman because I haven't done one before but I have done lots of sports so sometimes it flips and flops um, I'm thinking back it all started when I was at Bart's as a junior doctor I wonder what the first one was I could probably just need all of them that I've done. Which maybe, maybe that's easier then. Just take us through well, a, a few of the ones the, that you've done. The raft of the more recent ones were the, some years ago, which were the, which has been quite an interesting journey. So I decided because I'm normally well, quite often I try and do something I've never ever done before at all. So it's completely new, and it just I just want to know about it. So I'll choose something I really don't know about, and that I quite like to know about, or that I might think I don't know if I'm any good at that. Mm. So I suppose I've done you know skydiving and bits and bobs along the way for those sports. I did. Um, particle physics for a year and I learned that I really can't do particle physics it was unspeakably difficult for me people sitting in the room in the in the evening classes with me who just were all over it and nodding and you know would recognize the equation I just look at it and think I have no idea what that's about at all so I plugged at that for a year um, so then the next year I switched to close magic which was absolutely fantastically good fun probably partly because I wasn't doing particle physics <laughs> Um, and the year after that, I did drumming, 
which was also absolutely brilliant. Learned to play drums. Are these all self-taught, or are quite a lot of them uh, no, are you doing got, evening classes? No, evening classes. Yeah. Although this year is guitar, and I'm doing that myself. I've had three or four lessons just because sometimes you need someone mm. to just start you off on a, on a thing that you can then improve on. Um, and I'm enjoying that a lot. It's amazing what you find on YouTube. Actually, I'm doing an awful lot from YouTube. Right, it's amazing. Because I'm quite the same in trying to teach myself these things, and YouTube's just the best way ever. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? But you've got to find the right teacher, right? So on YouTube, it took me ages to find the guitarist that was doing it in a way that I sort of got. Uh, Listen, um, just to take you back to what you initially said when I was talking about this, Hmm. is where it all comes from. Where, where, so you would say that it's a rampant curiosity, really. It's a creative curiosity. You ask a question, you're, you're trying to creatively come up with the answer. Where... What makes you more like that? This is quite sciencey. What makes you more like that than someone else who's completely different? Oh, well, I mean, in generic terms, everything about every phenotype, as it were, every sort of that phenotype being a sort of trait, a characteristic uh, that you could observe, or, or um, every one of those essentially is driven by the combination of the genes you inherit and the environment you expose it to. There are some very rare. Extremes, so that's not true. So retinas- retinoblastoma and eye cancer, that's just a genetic mutation. You have the mutation, you get the eye cancer. You don't have the mutation, you don't get the eye cancer. End of. So that's 100% genetic. But nearly everything else is a minimum of 30% environment, or 30% genetic, rather. And sometimes, if you look at obesity and prepubescent children, it's about 80% genetic. Of the, of the variation is genetic. So I guess the answer to the question is, a lot of it was the genes I inherited from my parents, and then some of it will be the environment they were exposed to. So, and of course, those two go hand in hand because your parents genetically will likely be doing the things that will influence the genes that you inherited. So, that's the sort of more broad sweeping answer. The um, the more mechanistic answer is um, that. Well, I don't know. I did a management course years ago because you had to before you consultant, and they got it all to do one of these icing personality inventories, you know, for introvert, extrovert, yada, yada. And I still don't know what they split us up as, but they split us up on two tables with a bottle of champagne in the middle, and they just said, write down five words about what you see. So we all did and handed them in. And the other table had, you know, French, champagne, wine, bubbles, cork, foil, 14.3% ABV or whatever, and our table had sex, hangover, party, you know, and all this. And we all looked at each other thinking, how do you see the world so differently? And really, it was just that our table all saw the potential in things. And they saw the, the fact of them. So my brain certainly always sees the potential in whatever I'm looking at. Um, and there's another bit which I've discovered, which is about, in fact, my brain makes lots of very seemingly random connections all the time. There's chaff going off the whole time. And the point is to try and spot the bit that's the good bit. Um, so and there's an interesting book about neurolinguistic development in brains, you know, how human babies can sort out from noise what's a voice and how they can discern what the code is. You know, phonemes, small elements of words and tone and attach meaning to it because that's pretty tricky and the book was called the ascent of babel and it talks about how some brains you know are good at connecting so if i say chips some people just go okay what with what 
and other people go chip sounds like ship ship sea you know mm. sea that's got fish in it that and there's suddenly a whole branching arcade of connections being made and i'm certainly aware that that happens to the point where i've stopped using memory techniques that i'd started learning to store more information because it'd be quite fun to have a memory palace where i could store even more but the problem in building the memory palace was it put all the facts in a place and it stopped the random connections mm. so i demolished my memory palace i didn't want it anymore because it stopped the randomness what about energy so do you i was chatting to another author jeffrey archer actually recently oh, yeah. um and he was saying he believes energy is a god-given gift now you know maybe perhaps he's looking at the world from a different place that you are mm. uh but what do you say about energy, the ability, that, the fact that you can do all these things and some people very simply just can't be bothered? Well, I suppose quite a question of what you're calling about energy. If we're talking about motivation there, I guess, are we? I think a bit of both, actually. I think um, perhaps, perhaps it's not the motivation, actually. Perhaps it's the, the ability to cram all this stuff in. Um, I suppose I've... I suppose I'm driven by a rather keen awareness of mortality. So I've always been aware that the sand is running through the hourglass quite quickly. So I've got a sense of urgency about trying to get things done before the, the sand runs out. Um, I think um, a lot of it depends on the other emotional pressures, which, I mean, we're all, no matter how resilient you are or no matter how your brain works, uh, emotional pressure or suffering in any form, whether it's emotional or physical, very often saps you of motivation and ability to do anything. In fact, on the way here, he won't mind me telling you, my son ended up in emergency surgery this morning with a mashed hand and needing and, and stuff. And he was just, I suppose, just spoke to him and he was just saying, I'm, I'm so tired, Dad. I don't know why I'm so tired. And I was saying, well, you've been emotionally battered and you're in pain. And that will make any of us. And I was recounting, I remember as a junior, well, actually a medical student, I was looking out of a window and in the building opposite me, by chance, someone climbed onto the ledge and jumped off and burst, as people do when they hit the ground at speed. And I went out and he was, you know, obviously, there was absolutely no chance at all. And I saw the opportunity to bunk off for the afternoon and went home and was overwhelmed with fatigue at three o'clock in the afternoon, went to bed and didn't wake up until nine the next morning. So I think part of this is trying not to put yourself in the situation when you're emotionally battered because all of us will find our batteries run dry a little bit and I spend a lot of effort trying to avoid negative people because I'm naturally a glass half full empty a glass half empty person not a glass half full so I'll, I'll tend to be a more negative person so for me I have to make sure I'm not near people that can convince me life is crap because then I become torpid how, how many hours do you tend to sleep a night? Uh, I ration it, so there, there isn't really an average. I mean, during the week, I try to ration it to be between four and five hours, which isn't enough for me, but it means I can get more in. And then I try and catch up on a, one or two nights a week, which I will. anyone listening to this is not, is not a good idea. It's bad for you. It's clearly <laughs> mad and not good. But at the moment, I have too much to do, um, which is my own fault for saying yes to too much, basically. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll have more with you in just a sec. Uh, I've just been down the post office, actually. Just finished sending off a bunch of swag to those who have supported us over at Patreon. So if that's you, uh, sit tight. Uh, you'll get some nice things through the post hopefully in the next week or so. Some badges, bookmarks, some thanks. Uh, if you want some... If you want to help out the show, I'd love for you to pledge and support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You see, quite a lot goes into making this and bringing the show to you every week or so. Yes, I know we had a break over Christmas, but come on. Um, quite a lot does go into bringing this as often as we can. And I love it all. The reading, the researching, the interviewing, the editing, all of that. Uh, but costs do add up. Uh, so if you would like to help us out, it doesn't take a lot at all. But if you want to, if you've learned something over the the past eighty episodes now that have that's helped the way that you tell your stories, if you'd like to say thanks to the show, uh, I'd love you to send over anything that you can. Doesn't matter what it is, a dollar or so a month really goes a long way. You can help us out over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Earlier on this week, we had a bonus mini episode from Mason Curry. Uh, he, he made the blog Daily Rituals back in the late noughties. Then he wrote a book about it, which came out oh, back in 2013. He's back with a brand new book, Daily Rituals, Women at Work. And in the last episode, we heard all about his daily ritual. And he's back again, talking us through one of the most interesting routines from the new book. The American author Octavia Butler worked a series of, quote, horrible little jobs, including as a dishwasher a telemarketer, a warehouse worker, and a potato chip inspector, while writing the science fiction novels that would eventually make her name. After work, she would be too tired to write, and also, as she put it, too full of other people. She said, 
I found that I couldn't work very well after spending a lot of time with other people. I had to have some sleep between the time that I spent with other people and the time that I did the writing. So I would get up early in the morning. I generally would get up around two o'clock in the morning, which was really very much too early. But I was ambitious, and I would write until I had to get ready to go to work. That is Mason Curry, uh, a, a routine from his brand new book, Daily Rituals, Women at Work. You can get a link to buy it if you fancy right now. It's on the show notes, however you're listening to us. And you can also hear all about it in the last bonus mini episode that we released a few days ago. Before we get back into it with Hugh Montgomery, let me just remind you of another way that you can help out this show. This is if you're listening to us over in America. We've teamed up with Libro.fm Audiobooks uh, to give you a fantastic deal. Uh, They let you purchase audiobooks directly from your local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 of them, including New York Times bestsellers, recommendations from people in the know, booksellers all around the country. Uh, With Libro, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest company out there um, but you're helping the little guys you're you're paying back to the writing community now you can get a three month audiobook membership for the price of one you need to go to libro.fm and enter the code routine all capitals r-o-u-t-i-n-e and then with each listen you can take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores go on test it out um, give it a go for a few months see how you find it libro.fm and enter the code routine Let's get back into it then with this week's guest on Writer's Routine, Hugh Montgomery, he of the absolutely insane work schedule. Uh, He's a professor, a practising doctor, a lead on climate change, he's written kids books which have been turned into films, and his new one is a thriller, it's Control, Uh, it's set in the medical world. Now we talk more about the story in this half, what keeps the plot going, how it's his characters that keep him fascinated, and why he enjoys rolling up the qualities of all the like horrible people that he's ever met at work and, and squeezing them into one villain. We also talk about the science of the brain. How ridiculous is that for this show? Talking about the science of the brain with one of the UK's experts on such things. Uh, We find out actually what makes you creative as well. Uh, And we start with the book and talking about why for such a busy man to write it, he had to just completely escape. Right, and this one was a good one. That wasn't Cornwall. I went to my mate Eddie has got a converted barn in the middle of Normandy where there is absolutely no one. I mean, it was terrific. I could cycle about 8k to a tiny village where I said bonjour and merci and basically exited with cheese and wine, and that was my routine for about two weeks. So I would get up, uh, set the alarm at 5 to 5, be out of bed at 5, make coffee, because I'm a caffeine addict, and that's my treat for getting home in the morning, so I make nice coffee first thing. Um, Then I would sit down and start writing about half past five um, and I tend to work in blocks-ish of about two hours I suppose. If it's going really well I can run on for ages um, and if it's not going well it might be 25 minutes and I'll get up and kick the cat as it were and then sit down again. Um, and I will usually build in some exercise as well so I've um, this year I've got the guitar so I would pick that up and build in 20 minutes of a YouTube to learn a bit more of Stairway to Heaven or some 1980s rock anthem I'm trying to remember, something like Pink Floyd. Um, usually go for a, a run or a cycle for an hour and a half in the afternoon, but otherwise would work through 
usually till seven or eight. So probably 12 hours of writing, three hours of other things. And then sometimes that's enough, but sometimes it's only then it starts happening. So sometimes then if it kicks in, I'll be writing at two or three in the morning and just keep going through. Have you got a limit in what you are writing that day? Are you trying to get down 2,000 no. words? No, I know that I should. At least if you read everyone else, that's what they tell you they should do. Just write your 2,000 words. Um, no, I don't do that. No, I, I sometimes it comes in huge splurges, basically. Yeah. And we vaguely touched on this earlier, but how do you know what you are writing that day? If it's a book it's normally there's a sense of urgency usually there's a sense of urgency about it because when I've stopped it's because I've had to stop but because I already are desperate to tell the next bit of the story so I've not been as disciplined as I should so things like control were harder to because I basically just vomited it onto the page and then I've learned that that's actually a really that that makes life very very much harder to restructure things so I am a little better now at actually having some pivot points in place, some way stations, so that I don't go off down rabbit holes too much along the way. Um, but otherwise, I tend to let my creativity just, you know, if another character pops up, then I assume they must be there for a good reason. And I let them have their voice, really. Before we started recording, you mentioned, kind of passingly, oh, it'll be interesting to talk about where these stories actually come from. And yeah. you just said there, if another character pops up, it must be there must be a point to them. Yeah. Where are they coming from? So this might be quite scientific. Where, where, where has this idea, that this story come from? So that's a, you probably need to speak to a cognitive neuroscientist, not to me, but it, it's the, there is a lot of stuff going in our brains that we don't know about, of course. So you're your dominant hemisphere might be doing the rational thinking and so forth, but your other hemisphere is getting a lot of information. And whilst those two hemispheres are connected, there's sort of a bridge between the two, it's called the corpus callosum. We used to think that was largely about trading information. But what we've learned is an awful lot of it is about switching off the communication so that you don't end up getting bombarded with, you know, one bit of your brain that's doing a calculation or thinking about it isn't getting a constant stream of stuff from the other side. And you can see this sort of fact that you've got this duality in experiments in the 60s, not experiments, but treatments for epilepsy, where they split the brain to stop the epileptic sort of electrical waves spreading from one hemisphere to the other. And you could find someone getting out of bed in the morning and undoing their pyjama buttons to try to get a shirt on. And the other arm would have quite the other idea because the hemisphere wants to go back to bed. So it would be doing all the buttons up, trying to put the clothes back on again. And one would be sort of resetting the alarm and one would be switching it off permanently And because the two hemispheres were competing with each other about what they wanted to do. So I think there's an awful lot of stuff that's going on in the non-dominant part of your hemisphere that's plotting out the process um, that you probably don't know about. And of course we all, at least there are good data for very short-term decisions that we probably don't make those decisions at all. So it's post hoc rationalised. If you look at something called fMRI PET, where you can see bits of the brain lighting up, you find that someone can make a quick decision on something and then the cortex, the thinking part of the brain, gets informed of what the sort of non-thinking, as it were, part of the brain has done. And then if I say to you, why do you do that? Then you come up and say, well, actually, I've always preferred red or actually I had jelly yesterday, so I thought today would be... You can come up with a reason why you made the decision and it's nonsense. You're just 
post hoc fitting a rational explanation of the fact your brain went and did something without asking. Basically. And is there a reason that it's it's done that without asking? Is that doing it on any, or is that what we call instinct? Yeah, it's, we, we're probably, an awful lot of what we're doing is actually based upon, you know, it's partly this think, thinking fast, thinking slow bit. An awful, you know, if we had to rationally decide absolutely everything in our lives, we'd fry, wouldn't we? I mean, from basic motor skills like walking to eat and eating through to other quick decision making. But, you know, and we, it's something in intensive care, of course, you have to really guard against because you've seen a million patients that look like that. You will instantly say, this is what it is. And actually, very, very often you're right. Very often you're right because it's an instinctive that you just sort of know. But if you were to ask me, I'd say, well, it's obviously that because, and I'd give you a bunch of reasons. But probably I hadn't actually thought it through at all. I'm just fitting a model to explain why I made a decision. And that's dangerous. Because if I haven't actually thought it through, I could be making a mistake by thinking too quick. So I slow myself down, by even when I know what the answer is, by trying to make myself write down three other diagnoses it could be, and then think through all three or four of them. And sometimes I catch myself out by realising I've, I've made an instinctive re reaction to something that wasn't as well thought through as I'd convinced myself it was. We've discussed how you're a creative mind, but also working in diagnostics, mm. um, being a clinician. Mm. How much of storytelling are you? How much of storytelling are you viewing as almost diagnosis, almost seeing a problem of the story, and diagnosing its issues while you're writing? It, that's a, it's a very good question, actually, and probably more a good question than you thought it was when you asked it, because. Um, Diagnoses are our stories. They're all stories. Um, no one comes in and says, "Hello, I've got a, you know, I've got a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that's a grade whatever." They don't come in with that. What they come in with is a story. And I'm really, really very antipathic to this idea that all you do is take an American model where you just spend more money and put people in scans, because if you put people, if you run tests statistically 5% of the tests you run will be abnormal by definition because they'll that's just the nature of statistics and then that you convince yourself that must be meaningful so you do another 20 tests of which another one's going to be positive and sometimes it's irrelevant so tests should be reserved to confirm the diagnosis you've already made or to separate out two diagnoses you may have difficulty in deciding between and it all starts with the story so it, the most important part of a consultation and if any of you are listening to this at home you might recognize this the most important thing to you and should be to your doctor is the time of listening for you to tell your story what happened first what was the first thing you noticed what happened then and if you ask the right questions and help that person tell their story you often end up with a diagnosis the examination then helps you confirm it and the tests are often irrelevant after that. I was interested in the characters to start with. I'd met some less pleasant people in life as we all have and I'd met some good ones and it's quite fun to be able to roll up the bad ones into, into one. Um, and I was interested at the time with, I suppose... Um, you know it's all Shakespearean isn't it the flawed hero so 
this case actually completely flawed but with a few redemptive features and we've all met people like the absolutely fabulous whoever they are but in every other way totally reprehensible so the main character in this trenchard is like that he's an utterly utterly reprehensible beast but if you wanted an operation and you get him to do it you would want him to do it because he's technically a genius so you definitely want him but he's got absolutely no moral principles at all so i think those sorts of characters are interesting i like um the idea of how how far people draw the line in the sand for what's right and what's wrong um, and that I won't give the game away too much about that about one of the other characters and what they decide to do in the end um, but those those are I suppose the interesting things but then of course the the fun part for me was the voice for these people because there are scenes which were just tremendously good fun to write um, and I because I've been there I can see them and it's great to be able to describe something as which no one else would have seen, I wouldn't have thought, um, and describe it in a way that's real. So there's an operating theatre scene, which you know no one from the outside is ever going to see that, I wouldn't have thought. But it's pretty close to the truth in terms of the way it feels. Um, so that's fun. And I like dialogue. And it's quite fun to hear what these people had to say and the way they said them. So these, these are the, the big questions that you're asking yourself. Yeah. How did all that mold itself together in your brain as an idea when you sat down to start writing control yeah what did you know that it would be i knew who the main not protagonist the the nasty piece of work was and i knew what was going to get done to him because it was unspeakably unpleasant um then i had to think why um because it was so unspeakably unpleasant that you, you you know no viewer or reader is going to tolerate something really nasty being done to something unless they can really be on side with it right that otherwise it's just all distasteful so he had to have been sufficiently nasty a person and i won't tell you what the original was because when i took it to bonnie originally and um, i was told it was too dark and i said well what do you mean too dark there's no such thing as too dark with medical thriller but um, the thing I'd got him to do was considered so unspeakably bad that actually people would probably throw the book in the bin at once. So quite rightly, I listened and tempered it down. Um, but yeah, and that's, that was essentially where I started. And I knew the nature of the character who was redemptive in it, who was the, the goody for the baddie. And I knew who he was and what he was like. And at what point did the rest of it come? Quite often on the show, we describe the format of a story is a roadmap so you know where you're beginning you know yeah. perhaps where you're ending um how when when are things becoming clear to you as you're driving down the road through the windscreen well i, I don't know that i have a good roadmap and i think i have a rough idea of the the major signpost of you know who the main character is where we're ending up and i have a legendarily appalling sense of direction in real life and i have the same in stories so i find myself wandering all over the place uh, but usually it turns out that there's good reason for those people to be there and for things to have happened. So I've just got to trust the fact that um, if there isn't, I'll just get rid of those chapters and jettison them at the end. But usually they turn up. So I tend to wander and find myself in the right place. I sort of roughly where I'm going. But the bits between, there's it, I'd love to claim there was a route map and I knew I was going down the A3 or something. But um, I, I, I'm not, I'm afraid. No, I just sort of wander and look at the view and describe what I see until I get to the next place. I think lastly, um, 
this is not about the process of the day. This is about the process of the story one more time. How much yeah. do you think about the next word that is coming? Oh, that's a good question. Um, usually not at all, unless I'm writing a very specific... So for poetry, for poetry, I think, I think really... Yeah, so for poetry, I think very, very precisely. Um, yeah, what was it? Who, who was the famous author that, you know, described basically spending the whole day crossing out a line and then the next afternoon putting it back in again. I forget who that was now. But but th for poetry, it's very precise, very, very precise use of language. And my second children's book, actually, although my first children's book was in poetry, um, that just flowed. I didn't think too much about that because it was a children's story told in verse. Admittedly, 232 pages of verse, but it was, it was just, it galloped along. My second children's book, which told more to adults, oddly enough, was called Cloud Sailors. And that I tried to almost write prose using the immense richness that you would find in poetry. And that took me ages. It's a really short book, but for there I thought about every single, every single word. And it took ages to write. But normally for a thriller, no, it just belts out basically. And I don't think about the next word at all. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Massive thank you to Hugh Montgomery for sparing the time in his ridiculous schedule and for everyone down at Bonnier uh, for making it happen and giving us the space. If you heard anything in there which you think will help the way you tell your stories in the weeks to come, or you've enjoyed anything you've heard in the two episodes we've given you this week, uh, I'd love for you to support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. You can also leave a review for us over on the Apple Podcast Store, if that's how you're listening to us. If it's not, it's all right. Just tell someone that you know. Uh, include us in the writing community over on Twitter. And you can give us a follow on Twitter as well. It's at WritersPod. Uh, we're back next week with the writer Paul French talking about his new stories uh, of old murders in China. He's released them as an audible special compilation kind of thing. Uh, you can find out all about that in next week's Writers Routine with Paul French. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.